Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. This week, I'm joined once again by Dr. David Curry. This week, we're going to be talking about practice building. In reality, I've seen and experienced a pattern in practice life. Dr. Curry has also seen and experienced the same pattern in his life. Whether you're just starting out or you've been at this for a while, it's helpful to know the pattern and to be aware of the pitfalls that are often lurking where we least expect them. So without any further ado, Dr. David Curry. Dr. Curry, welcome back for part two. Good morning, Dr. Dave. Glad to see you again. Uh, today, we're going to talk about something we haven't talked about on this podcast at all, and that is um, the practice building side. And as as you and I have talked a little bit, we've seen that um, we've had very similar experiences, and and I don't think they're just unique to the two of us and more because we're both in California, but I think that as I've talked to people, I've seen it all over the country, and it seems like, it seems like a lot of students get into Gonstead, they start learning Gonstead. They come up in school, but then when you cross that barrier and you get into practice, we start seeing a different attrition level. And one of the things that seems to decide who ends up lasting and who doesn't has a lot to do with how they choose to practice. Um, and so um, as we've seen those things, those are the kind of the things we want to talk about is what makes it so that you can be as gung-ho as you want to be graduating. But if you don't do the right things after that, you may not stick around in this. It may not work for you. So that's kind of the idea. And I think one of the things that we often get in our heads, I think, you probably did this. I did this. Everybody that I know did this. And that is we graduate and we go, I'm going to be the next Dr. Gonstead. I'm going to work long hours and I'm going to work lots of days and I'm going to see lots of people. And we think that that's the life that we want, which I don't even know how he did it for as long as he did it. Because even after a short time, I was like, that's for the birds. I'm not doing that. Uh, but we get into that mindset. And so when I opened my first practice, I was there six days a week, all day long, every day. And I probably only had about six patients. And a week after I opened, 9-11 happened. And I had no patience. So <laughs> you spend a lot of time sitting around by yourself. So that's one of the first places we start. So let me have you talk a little bit about how you started, how you got going, and what you saw getting into it. Great. I'd be happy to. And, you know, interesting you said that because you and I have both been down a similar road and that we started from scratch, built very large practices, and then and then that ended, you know, and, and I'll call it retirement, uh, and, and have restarted ourselves and regenerated and and renewed ourselves. So uh, I think beginning with the end in mind, as one of my mentors, Tony Robbins, used to say, uh, success always be uh, always uh, works around the, the story of begin with the end in mind. And I think that's what we need to uh, try and impart upon our young colleagues that are in chiropractic college, especially our young doctors just getting started, is if they begin with the end in mind, uh, they're going to be better off. And in some people, their whole entire career is going to be just working, just like Dr. Gonstead. And and uh, if that's if that's what they have in, in their soul, then, then great, good for them. But uh, uh, if they if they feel like they want to have a family, they want to have a lifestyle, and all that, they need to begin with that story in mind. Uh, and I didn't start like that. I started out, with, you know, wanting to have a family, but I didn't realize it. I also wanted to be the biggest and the greatest chiropractor I could be. I wanted to see more patients than anybody else was seeing, and and that's all for your ego. And, uh, you know, I've been there and done that and looking back now and, and the way I'm in practice now, uh, after I retired from the rat race and I have a, a, a two different satellite, I have a regular practice in Fremont and I have uh, California and I also have a satellite office in Pleasant Hill. 
I would recommend something similar to a model like this. And, and uh, I'll be happy to outline that uh, later on for you. Yeah, for sure. Cause you know, you get into that mode and I, I mean, for some people, maybe it's three years, maybe it's five years, maybe it's seven years, maybe it's 10 years, but eventually you reach a kind of burnout. And I was really thinking about that burnout because I know a lot of people say, well, the burnout's because you lose your passion and you lose you lose something else or you never had it. They kind of make it critical. But I, the more I thought about it, I was like, that's not why you get burnout. The reason you get burnout, at least for me, was the how mundane it became that you basically have no life outside of chiropractic. If you're not doing chiropractic, you're probably either eating or asleep. And every day starts to look the same. And you start getting lots and lots of patients who it's just like little minor aches and pains and bumps and whatever. And you really want more of the really severe ones, but then the really severe ones, the unusual cases, those really wear you out. So mentally you're getting tired, but a lot of it just has to do with the mundane that I'm doing this over and over and there's no end in sight and there's nothing inspiring about it. And to me, that was the problem where it was burnout. And so when I closed my office and I took a year off, I thought to myself, how do I reinvent this in a way that I, that I know what I need? How do I reinvent it so I can actually have those elements? Um, or if it's not getting some of those unique cases or whatever else, which really wasn't even that inspiring to me. It was, how do I craft this so that I have a life outside of the office? Because that's going to energize me to come into the office. And then being in the office is going to energize me to go out and live my life and have both that balance. And so um, I, I know you had something similar. How, what, what did you do as you've created this now to, to recognize I need to have a life in, outside the office just as badly as I need one in the office? Well, okay, so I'll tell you uh, Taking a step backwards, you know, when, when I was uh, fully engaged in practice, uh, the practice of, I'll call it the practice of my dreams, busy as all get out, I had four adjusting rooms, always had at least one associate, usually two, sometimes three, uh, and massage therapists, a complete full staff and all that. Uh, you know, I, I, my, was, my whole life was built around my practice. And I had four kids, um, and my wife and I were raising four kids. But as it came, as the years developed, uh, we slowly started getting sick in our relationship, my wife and I, uh, in our relationship. And, and when I say sick, it's kind of like cancer. You don't know you're sick until you're very, very sick. And, uh, you know, she got really busy raising children. We had two, two and a half years apart, four times, you know, four different kids, each of them two and a half years apart. Uh, three of them were planned, and one of them just happened. <laughs> and, and, uh, but uh, going through all of that, uh, at the end, I, I got married to my practice. She got married to raising the kids, and we had a lifestyle that, that was built around those directions. And we didn't plan it that way. We just It just ended up that way. I just built a lifestyle around making enough money and, and having enough goals in my chiropractic career uh, to where I became totally immersed in my practice. She became totally immersed in her practice. And like cancer, we slowly grew apart, and we got sick. And then one day I woke up and I got served with divorce papers and, and that was a wake up call. And uh, so now after I retired and I've got back into practice again, uh, I, I was like, you know, I was out of practice for a little less than a year. Uh, and I went back into practice. I just totally missed loving and caring uh, for sick people. Uh, I, I realized that's my calling in life, but uh, now I'm in practice with a very small office. I, I, I love to at some point today uh, describe exactly what I what what the, the necessities are and the difference between needs and wants when you set up a practice and and uh, do I need this equipment do I need these services or do I want them and there's a big difference between needs and wants I heard uh, Dr. Claudia Andre talk about that lesson she learned from her father uh, one time uh, Dr. Ernst Andre is my, learning the difference between my needs and my wants and uh, so yeah 
it's it's a totally different world when you when you when you talk about uh, my needs are I need to have enough enough service enough equipment to serve my clients and enough of a facility to serve uh, and my wants are I want to have this big huge beautiful office and and uh, and, and, and in the middle of town and, and have this big name and, and so forth and so on that's a want but a need is 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 different. Yeah, actually, we should talk about that now because I think one of the things that um, would probably surprise a lot of people is you're in your office and I'm in mine, and um, neither one of us has a receptionist. And I think most people don't even know how they would function without one, and yet neither one of us has one. And I'll admit, I am a terrible receptionist. My patients will tell you that too. But that most of them have come, like there's shortcuts. They've figured out, they look for my truck. If my truck's here, they know I'm here and they'll just stop in. That's fine by me. I don't care. They know what days I'm here. They know what hours I'm here. I'll be here. So it's like, yeah, if you want an appointment, Send me, send me a text. Don't call me. I probably won't answer it. Send me a text. I'll get to you between patients. And if that doesn't happen quickly enough, just come by. I'll be here. So we find ways of getting it through. But a large part of that, I'm sure for you as well, is that we live, we're in California. And having staff is ridiculously expensive. And so you have to ask yourself, is it really worth it? Am I really willing to pay that much money for somebody to answer the phone? Well, no, I'm not. And then with technology, there's other ways. I even have a system where they can make online appointments. So there's ways about that. So let's talk a little bit about the practice setup um, and what, what we've got going on that um, for being experienced and down the road, we, we have low, low overhead, high net offices. So Sure. Well, okay, first off, before we, before we go there, there's even one thing even more fundamental than that, and that is the mindset of who, who, who you are as a doctor. Uh, some people, their mindset is, I need a job. I need to work for somebody else. I don't want to be making decisions. I just want to take care of patients. And if that's the case, then they need to go work for the joint or for somebody somebody that's going to hire them as an associate just to take care of patients. And, and that's, that's, that's not a bad thing. No, I don't, that's I don't very know. acceptable. Yeah, it's very acceptable. I mean, that's, that's a good place to be. But you need to decide, who am I? Am I, am I of the mindset that I need it? I'm an employee. I just want to be able to have the patients come in. I take care of them and, and, and I get a paycheck. Uh, and, and that's one mindset. That's the employee mindset. The entrepreneur mindset is a very different mindset. That's what we can talk about more in detail. Uh, well, I need you, to add that if, if you have the entrepreneur mindset, you're going to make a terrible associate. Because correct. everything you do, everything you're thinking, well, I would do it like this. I would do it like that. That's great, but that makes a terrible associate. So you really have to know yourself and know: should I be the associate and let somebody else run the show, or do I need to be running the show because I'm just going to drive everybody else nuts? Well, exactly. You know, it's interesting because I was a CEO of a very busy practice for for 25 years. I'm used to being the decision maker. I'm used to saying, if I want to make more money, what do I need to do? And I, I answer my questions. If I want to take more time off, what what do I need to do? And I answer the questions. And now I work at a college, and and uh, and I'm and I'm I'm in a good place. I love I love working at the college, uh, but I'm an employee now. I don't make the decisions anymore. I show up. They tell me where to go, what time I'm going to work, how much money I'm going to make, when I can take time off, and you know what? That's you know it, it's okay. I live in that world as well, and and uh, you know so so I I, I got a feel for what it's like. But starting a practice from scratch, I think that the first thing it starts off with, if you're going to, if we're talking to our young docs who are in their, their final ter, uh, terms in chiropractic college uh, or young doctors just, just starting out after they graduate, I think the very first question you need to stop and ask yourself is take an inventory. You take a personal inventory of their own personal skills. Do they really have what it takes to, to, to be a doctor? And, and, and we can make a list of those skills. I'll be happy to go through that if you'd like. Um, but, but I think that that's, the, that's where it starts. Take a look at your own personal skills 
do I have the do I have the capacity to take care of sick people? Um, would you like me to start with that? Yes, I think we should do that because I think that is a big part of it. Because you're right, it's the mental, and then it's also the physical skills, and that's the best place to know. Because I know for me, when I graduated, I didn't want to go into private practice. I did want to work for somebody, but I couldn't find anybody to work for. So then ultimately, I just started on my own and was forced to become an entrepreneur. And have since decided that I love that aspect, but that wasn't where I wanted to start. And I think for me, it would have been very helpful to have a set of skills to know this is where I need to be. So yeah, let's start there and talk about what it takes to, to do. All right. Well, I, I'm going to be bold enough to suggest that if, if you're, if the listeners to our podcast right now are young docs in their senior year in chiropractic college or just recently graduated, I would suggest they get a pen and paper out and maybe stop and pause and write some of this down because this, this is critical. Uh, first off, the inventory of your personal skills. Number one, you've got to be able to take a, a history on a patient. You've got to be able to do that. Your analysis and evaluation skills is where it starts. If you can't find subluxations, you're worthless as a chiropractor. Let's just be straight about it. Yeah. You're absolutely worth it. You're a menace to society. If you're a chiropractor, really good at treatment, but you can't find the patient's problem, that's the single most important skill that they need to take inventory of. How are my evaluation skills? And that includes their instrumentation. If a gun said doc, it includes taking a history, learning, learning to really get visual findings on patients, their palpation skills, including static and motion palpation. They need to be able to scope the patient. They need to be able to take x-rays and know how to analyze the x-rays. So that's the first skill is their analysis skill. Well, it's I'm going to say for, for the associates that I've had, I think they've learned more about finding subluxations than they have about adjustments from being in the office. And I don't think that that's what they expected, but that's what they got. And then they, and as they got that, they realized how important that actually was and how it was missing. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because we look around now, both of us are, in, are teaching in chiropractic college. You're at Life in Georgia, me and Life West in California. And, and, you know, we're looking at our students and we're saying, my gosh, I got students who are really brilliant, look like they're brilliant chiropractic uh, potential uh, Gonset doctors. And they're out there chasing all these shiny lights and shiny objects. I want to be, I want to take a pediatrics course. I want to get a, uh, a credential as a sports physician. I want to be uh, I want to be uh, get this extra credential in, in functional neurology and all that. I said, hey, that's great. All those little shiny objects are going to detract away. If you haven't got the fundamentals of finding subluxations first, you you know those extra credentials are great to have down the road. But in the beginning, if you want to start your practice out, my my gosh, man, start with finding subluxations there first, and then we can say, say, create the list on on the, they've got to be able to fix an L five. If they can't adjust an L five. I mean, Richard Thornton, when I came in with him, the first thing he asked me, he says, Dave, adjust my fifth lumbar. And I, I, I took that lesson. Every associate I ever hired, it's the first thing I said, set my fifth lumbar. Because if they can't adjust me, I'm easy to adjust. If they can't adjust an L5, I, I, I don't have time to train them, right? Yeah. So, so, so that's what's going to come into your practice all day, every day. So be able to set an L5. That's the first one. Be able to set a PI. Be able to set an AS, an IN, and an EX, and a sacrum, and uh, with a push and a pull on some of those moves, they can they can they can finish the list there on their own. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that they also need to be able to adjust the lower cervicals. I would start out at C six, then C seven, then T one. They T1, need to be able to thoracic T one, T two, or T. Absolutely, absolutely. This is what they're going to spend their their day in. Is if they're going to doctor, this is what they're going to be working on. Be able to adjust an atlas. I would make darn sure they're really good at the knee chest table. That's such an important tool to have uh, and, and, and an absolute necessity in the practice is the knee chest mm -hmm. table. Uh, 
I can't tell you how many times. I mean, I'm talk, we're talking to the choir, you and I, right? Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I had a patient who was just too big for me to adjust on their side posture. And I'm a reasonably good size, five foot 11 and, and around 200 pounds. I'm a reasonably good size man. But I've had patients, once you start talking to patients about weight loss, guess what you start attracting? <laughs> the fattest people in your community. And, and you start getting people bigger and bigger and bigger. And when they start getting around 60 and 70 inch waist, uh, okay, now they're really just too big for me to adjust on their side. I'm a fly on their back. Bring them over to the knee chest table, and I can handle just about anybody any size. Yeah, uh, and so I'm only getting older, so I don't want to. <laughs> I need I need to find ways of preserving my spine. <laughs> exactly. So that's where I would say I think that way they should start is taking a look at their inventory of their skills, and take a pencil out and be honest with yourself. You know, to, Shakespeare said it: "To thine own self be true," right? And uh, be honest with themselves. Am I really good at fixing an L5? Can I set it with a push? Can I set it with a pull? Can I set it on an HS table? You know, and, and so forth and so on. Create that inventory and, and be honest with themselves, what they can and where they need to grow their skills at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think I've got a lot of stepping stones. Like if you, you know you need the knee chest, but if you're not good at the knee chest yet, the high-low is a great place to start developing the hand touch you need. To then move over to the knee chest. So I tell people, if you can't do an L5 on the knee chest table, start by trying to do an L5 on the high-low. The high-low with the tension set really high, so you have some good pushback. Get used to that feel. And then as you get used to that feel, you'll have something to work with when you go to the knee chest. And for me, that's how I developed it, was the high-low really helped me to get better at the knee chest. Exactly. So then, so I think that, you know, once they get their chiropractic skills inventory down, then they need to talk about, say, taking inventory on their business skills. Mm -hmm. Do they know basic math, you know, how to add and subtract? I mean, I, I don't mean to insult anybody, but quite honestly, some people don't, don't realize how valuable that is, you know, being able to add and subtract, you know, how much money am I collecting and how much money am I paying out? Adding is collecting, right? Collecting is drawing the business in that you keep adding those dollars in. But, but if you keep, and, and, and again, if they're, if their expenses exceeding their, their, their income, they're in the negative and they're not going to be in business very long. You can't use your credit cards for, forever. You know, <laughs> they're going to run out and they're going to cap out. And, and uh, sooner you got to take care of that sooner or later. So basic math. Uh, you know, the other thing is, is that um, there's skills on, on, on how to do an examination. I mean, a physical exam when a new patient comes into the office, exactly the paperwork that needs to go along. What you need to have a, a history form, a frame of reference. Find a successful doctor who's been in practice for a while and say, "Can I get a copy of your history form?" And you know, Microsoft Word. You can type up your own history form, and that's what I do. I just type it up on Microsoft Word. My letterhead is is on, on Microsoft Word. Um, you know, and and and, uh, and I print my own letterhead on on nice paper. You know, so with technology today, we can do so much. I mean, I, you know, you don't need a te an expensive telephone system. I use a cell phone. I use my cell phone. I use one calendar for my whole entire life. I mean, this is technology that we have now that, that is available. You have one, I have one calendar. I use a Google calendar. I have my college schedule on it, my personal schedule, my office practice schedule. So I only have, so I don't overlap. We have multiple calendars. You get very confused and you overlap yourself, but one calendar and, and that's it. Um, you know, and, and as far as, as far, you mentioned something about scheduling patients uh, and having technology use that, I mean, I, I use I use Square, the same one you use when you, you go to a vendor down the street that uses Square. 
Uh, I use Square for my credit cards. They're very inexpensive. Uh, there might be somebody less expensive, but they're hard-pressed to find somebody. They're very inexpensive. And Square has a free appointment app as well. It's free. It's absolutely free. You can get a link on your appointment app, and you can text that to anybody that wants to come in. Every new patient I get that comes in, one of the first things I do, I tell them two things first off. Number one, every new patient at the end of the first day, I tell them two things. This is number one. You can count on me 24-7. Now, this is just me. I wouldn't recommend this for everybody, but I'm available 24-7. And here's how you can reach me. Text me. Don't call me, but text me because I'll get back with you within 24 hours. So I'm available 24-7. doesn't mean I'm going to go run it out of the office 24-7. I'm available 24-7. So here's my cell phone number. And then while I've got cell phone numbers, let me program you into my cell phone so I know it's you whenever you call me. So we exchange phone numbers. I text them a message. They text me back. And I said, now, by the way, while we're on a cell phone, I'm going to text you a link to my appointment app right now as we speak. And I do that right there. Boom. So every new patient, I tell them two things. Number one, I'm available 24-7. They can reach me by text. And number two, here's how you can make an appointment with me. See, if you make it, if you make the game real simple and real easy, uh, then people can play the game with you. But if you make it difficult and complicated to come in and see you, it's very tough. Yeah, and I think those are those are huge things that if you're a student, you can be drawing up your paperwork now. If you're a student, you could be putting together your plan for Square and like you can put together a basically a business plan. And so that's one of the things is if you're a student, you should be putting together a business plan. It doesn't have to be perfect and it doesn't have to cover every detail because there's always aspects where you're like, well, I don't really know. But as you go through the process of putting together a business plan, you're going to quickly realize either I know what needs to be done and I need to do it or I don't even know what should be done, or I don't know the best way. Well, now when they go to the extravaganza or some other event and they're around people like us, now you know what questions to ask because now you know what you don't know that you need to know. And certainly all of us who practice have some answer. It may not be the best answer, but we have some answer of some way that works for us. And so um, that's, that's I think as a student, that's the thing you should be doing to already be building your business before you even physically built anything. Well, I, I agree. I, I agree. And, and I think that if you're, if you're talking to someone who has the mindset of an entrepreneur, uh, one of our you know, recent graduates or, or senior, uh, seniors in chiropractic college, I think that the question you want to ask yourself is, is first off, number one, what are, what are my skills that, in, in taking that personal inventory and being honest with yourself? When you really sat down and think about, you know, is it worth it for me to be in practice? I think ultimately it comes down to you need to make profit. And so I think that if we, if we ask our, our, a young doc, you know, what does it mean to you to be profitable? I would say this. Here, let's make it really straightforward and simple. How much money at the end of one year do you would you like to be making at the end of one year? And and uh, and, and I'm just going to throw an example out. I'd say $100,000. In most areas in the country, $100,000 of personal income is, is not too bad. You know, certainly that, that's, not, that's not impressive here in California, but in most parts of the country, that's really a lot of money, right? So if you started off saying, I, I want to make $100,000 a year at the end of year one, after you've been in practice for one year, you stop and think, okay, how much does that mean I need to earn in a month? Well, that's basically $8,000. So 8,000 times 12 is 96,000. So call it 8,000. It's close enough. So if you stop and say, what would it take for me to make $8,000 of personal income a month? Just basic fundamentals. That's why I said the simple math, adding and subtracting. I'd say, first off, you need to understand the, the, the simple formula. The simple formula is 
how much money am I taking in? That's my cash. That's my plus. And how much money is my overhead that you take away your overhead from your from your income? And then, then you, you total that out and the balance is what you make. So if you want to make $8,000 a month, you need to step up and go backwards and say that's the total. That's the number that goes in the bottom of the line, the bottom of the adding and subtracting line. Then figure out what would your overhead be. Uh, I'll, I'll be happy to throw some numbers out for that. And then now if you know what your overhead is going to be, you subtract that. The only unknown is how much money do I actually need to generate in a given month, right? And in, and so so I can throw some numbers out if, 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 you, if you like. Um, you, you want me to throw some numbers yeah, out? Yeah, let's do that because I'm thinking, so you need to make 8000 but then what people don't think about is, yeah, but if your rent is 2000 or let's say you built an ego practice and it's 4000 you now have to make $12,000 a month. And then you've got utilities. Let's say that's 500. Be polite, be nice and say it's 500. Now you're up to 12.5. And this number keeps going up and up and up that you have to make. And yet what a lot of people do is they say, I need to make 8,000. Then they let their overhead come off the 8,000. And in the end, they're making two. And you can't <laughs> yeah. live on that. So you got to make sure that you, th I, I think that when it comes to business, I've always said you have to be intensely realistic. And there's really not a lot of place for optimism in, in business assessment because we like to be optimistic and think, well, I'm going to have lots of patience and lots of money and this will work out and that'll work out. Optimism doesn't do well. You actually, if you're an optimistic person, you got to find a way of pushing that aside and choose to be intensely realistic that if anything, pessimism is going to be better because then you go, well, I need to make 8,000. Let's assume I only make six <laughs> and you have to make those kind of judgments and then you'll be okay. So yeah, let's go with, let's do some numbers and, and see okay. what that looks like. Well, let's get down to the brass tacks of it all. I said, so remember that the, the Dr. Ernst Henry taught, taught, uh, taught me many, many years ago through his daughter, Claudia, uh, you know, wants versus needs. So what you, what you need in practice is the bare minimum to get started. So I'm taking a look. I'm literally sitting in my satellite office right now. I'm looking around in here. And if I look around in here, I would say I have one set of constant equipment. I can only treat one patient at a time. This is to begin with. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is your growth. This is your dream practice. But to begin with, I have one set of Gonset equipment, which is a knee chest, a bench, and a chair. I have a Zenith Hilo table. I bought that Hilo table uh, uh, used for $500, had it recovered for another $300. So I've got $800 invested into a nice Hilo. I have a computer. Okay, it's an all-in-one computer. I, I have a desk, a small little desk I bought on Amazon.com. I have a computer, uh, excuse me, I have a printer, all-in-one printer with a fax and a, and a a uh, copy machine attached to it. I have my nervoscope. I have some gowns. I have a two-drawer file cabinet. I have a plastic spine, and uh, and I have some some miscellaneous office supplies. Now that's the bare minimum that you need to be in business. Okay, so you figure out if you took a if you built, took an office space. My little office that I'm looking in here right now is about 300 square feet. 300 square feet. Okay. Now, depending on where you're at in the country, 300 square feet, you can find an office space in a nice office complex. Uh, it's a nice professional building uh, that'll be happy to have a chiropractor. Now, by the way, I don't have an x-ray machine. You don't need to start with an x-ray machine. I don't recommend you start with an x-ray machine. You should have an x-ray machine at some point, I, I, of course. But I don't need, you don't need, again, it's wants versus need. You don't need to start off with an x-ray machine. Dr. Alex Moreau. Uh, great Gonset Doc is just a few, few mile, a couple miles away from me, uh, and he's a, a great Gonset doctor. He takes full spine X-rays for me in my Hayward office or my Fremont office, I should say. I use the Chiropractic College in Hayward 
to take uh, digital X-rays for me. So, so, and and I and I let them get the money. I don't need to make money on the X-rays. Uh, I'm I'm fine without that. Uh, in in time, I would recommend you grow to an X-ray machine, but you don't need to start with that. That's a that's a want. It's not a need. Uh, I need to have X-rays. You can find any and every X-ray facility in your community. Would be happy to take your business these days. They get their business on referrals. They don't. They don't have people coming in just for X-rays. They get their doctors referring their patients. So, so you're the doctor referring. So there's every medical facility, and if you can find one that'll take the X-rays you like, you can deal with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's it. So, so if you take a look at what are the what are the expenses, you're gonna have your rent. For me, my utilities are included in my rent, and, and every every lease is is negotiable. Uh, so my utilities are included in that. So I have a bathroom that's outside in the building. It's a, you know, a few feet away from my door is the bathroom. It's paid for. It's included in my rent. It's a common bathroom that all the other offices in the building use. Um, you're going to need a cell phone. I recommend a cell phone. I wouldn't recommend you have a, an in-office uh, telephone machine. You don't need that anymore these days. Uh, I have, you need Internet access. I have Xfinity at home. Uh, Xfinity has free Wi-Fi hotspots everywhere in both of my chiropractic offices. I use a free Xfinity Wi-Fi. Uh, it's it's uh, it's secure enough to, for me. I use McAfee for uh, for wireless protection, and so I'm I'm quite comfortable with that. You're going to need to have malpractice insurance and probably some miscellaneous expenses here or there, buying office supplies, business cards, and so forth and so on. Some of those are first-time, one-time expenses. And you're going you're gonna to have to have a business license, right? Mm-hmm. So all in all, I would say a reasonable overhead for a startup practice like what I'm describing right now, depending on where you are, is going to be somewhere between $1,000 to $2,000 a month. I mean, this is the bare bones. Just that's your needs. Just $1,000 to $2,000. If I, my overhead here is, is about $1,500 a month. That's it. My total overhead is $1,500 a month, Okay. So you figure if I've got overhead of fifteen hundred dollars a month, that's my minus, and and I want to make eight thousand, that's my total. I only need to, to figure out what how much money do I need to generate a month to make eight thousand dollars, and that turns out to be nine thousand five hundred. Call it ten thousand. Make it an easy number. Call it ten thousand. I got a little wiggle room there. I need to collect ten thousand dollars a month. Now, I also highly recommend, Dave, and, and, I, and I'm sure you feel similarly as this because we've talked before, I don't feel the future of, of chiropractic is in the world of insurance. I think the future of chiropractic is in cash. Cash never goes away. Cash is always a good thing. If you provide a good quality service, people are willing to pay their, their, pay, 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 uh, their credit cards and their cash out of their pocket for you, then you know you're generating a quality service. Uh, it's a totally different feel when somebody comes in and puts their insurance card down and says, bill my insurance doctor versus here's my card doctor, here's your fees, and, and I got a reasonable fee, and, and, and bada bing, bada boom. So if you start out with cash, it, it's easy to, to grow, and, and, and you don't have to deal with all the, all the uh, un, unknowns about waiting for the mailman to come in and see if I've got money today. If you deal, yeah. deal with insurance, that's your, that's the highlight of your day with the mailman coming in because there's my check. <laughs> it's true. Right? <laughs> it's true. I live that over my wife's dental office, and I'm always checking the mailbox like, what? That's <laughs> true. <laughs> so so there you have it. I mean, you you know, just 10,000. So now you stop and think the next thing I would recommend that they take their pen and paper out is they need to take a calculation on what is their capacity factor. 
that's a big topic. And I learned this from Dr. Charlie Ward many, many years ago, Kirby Landis and Charlie Ward. Um, I learned this about learning how to determine what is your capacity factor. And that means how many patients, how, how many new patients can you see in a day? You know, if, if I can only see two new patients in a day, that's my capacity. That's it. I can't see three. Three people can't come in. I can only see two. So you need to decide how many new patients. And if you don't plan those times out and block them off in your calendar, you're making a big boo-boo. You can't just fit a new patient in. You need to have that block of time in there. So you need to decide as a beginning doctor, how much time do I need for a new patient? If it's 30 minutes like it is for an experienced doc like you and me, or if it's an hour and a half like it is for somebody just getting out of college with all these extra forms that they've got in their mind they need to fill out, right? So, so you need to decide if it's a, if, call it an hour. I need an hour. I need to block out an hour in my business day that that's the time I set aside. I don't schedule anybody else, no meetings, no, no emergency visits, no nothing. Because as soon as you start filling in that new patient's spot, there's no more space for that new patient to come in. They call you and you can't get them in. And uh, so, so I would say you never you need to figure out how many new patients can I see in a given in a day. Then I want to I would next write out how many patients can I see in an hour. I'm used to my my calendars and, and and when I'm busy with the staff, I can see as many as five people every 15 minutes. You count that out. That's 20 people in an hour. These are just routine patients coming. It's not new patients now. Now, when I don't have a staff right now, I can see as many as three people every 15 minutes, and that's the maximum I can see, three people every 15 minutes. Now, this is me. This is an experienced doctor, somebody fresh out of college that can't work that fast. Mm -hmm. But I know I can do my job and do a really good job, including educating the patient uh, in five minutes. Okay, so, um, and then then I would say, next thing you want to ask yourself is, how many hours do I want to work in a given day? Four hours, six hours, eight hours. And so, so you say, well, I start at nine. I want to end at six. How, many, how much of a lunch hour am I going to take? Most of us will work nine to 12 and three to six, something like that. So if you did work that nine to 12 and three to six, and you had that three-hour gap in the middle of the day to take care of you going to the gym and your personal activities, that's my, my day to go do my shopping, whatever else I need to do, have my team meetings with, you know, visit with my colleagues, go out and do some marketing from 12 to three, whatever you do. But now that's six hours a day. So whatever that turns out to be, how many hours a day? And then the last question is, how many days a week do I want to work? I started off just like you did. We've talked about this before. I started off working six days a week, Monday through Friday, plus half a day on Saturday. And I found out that Saturdays were the first thing I had to get out of my calendar once I started having kids. And I realized, you know, I need to be home with the kids on Saturday. And then my wife was saying, but we have things we need to do during the week. So I took a half a day off and then I took a Thursday off and then I decided... Later on down the road, wait a minute, I work like Dr. Gan said. I don't need to see people Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I work like Dr. Gan said. I was just dumb enough to do it like Gan said and, and, and intensely work on new patients in the beginning and get them well and then release them, you know, um, release them onto well care or whatever. But, uh, but, but I, so I set my calendar up on th- uh, four days a week, actually three and a half is what I mean to say, Monday uh, Wednesday and Thursday were my full days and Tuesday was a half a day. And I had, I set the game up with my own rules. I had a three day weekend every single day. So set your plan up the way you want to. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the things we don't give ourselves permission to do, but we really do have permission to do. You could take every Monday. If Mondays are a bad day for you, take Mondays off. Work the other four days of the week. Um, if you need a break in the middle, take Wednesdays off. Work Monday, Tuesday. Take Wednesday off. Work Thursday, Friday. Um, for me, what I end up doing is right now I'm working Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And the reason why is because my wife works Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So that means we work the same days and we have the same days off. Hmm. We are so much more productive that way because for a while it seemed easier to do I work the days she doesn't work. So she worked Monday, I worked Tuesday. She worked Wednesday, I worked Thursday. Basically, we never saw each other and we couldn't get any home stuff done. So then it was like, okay, rethink. We can be smarter than this. I'll work the same day as you. And then today's Friday. So today, I actually have a short day and I'm going to make it even shorter than usual because um, I'm starting earlier. I'm going to get done earlier, which means that then in the afternoon, I can go to her office and I can do some stuff over there that needs to get done. So I'm basically working both offices today. So we figure out ways of being more productive and then we always get our Saturdays and Sundays off. And for us, that's, that's what's finally kind of hit that resonance where it really seems to work, but it took us a little while to find it in all honesty. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so wonderful to be at this point in our careers, to be able to look back and say, this is what I did and, and I did this right. And this is what I did. I did. I wish I'd done this differently. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, you know, I, I, it's a mindset, right? Differently versus wrong. Um, you know, so I, you know, I, I and looking back at my career when I was raising my kids, I'm, I'm still raising one. I've got a 12 year old, but when I was raising my four kids, my first marriage, you know, I, 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 I should have spent more time with my kids. And now one of them passed away last year. It's coming up on a one year anniversary. And every time I think about it, I, I, I remember you being sitting there right next to me when we, when I got the phone call, um, I don't even want to go there, but you know, no. <laughs> I'm talking about the loss of my, my son, but uh, you know, so creating your values and deciding what's important to you. Um, you know, I, I do think we should talk about goal setting at some point as well. Well, only because you bring that up, I do want to mention the fact that not that we want tragedies to happen in this, in that environment, but when they do, I don't know if people realize how much, even in that group of the board meeting, it really is more like we're not just like people who associate with each other and we're not really just friends. Sometimes we're almost like family. And I think that especially now in my career, having people like that, that I can reach out to any time and we feedback off of each other. That was something I sorely missed when I was younger. And I think that when um, that as as students, you really almost need to find your core group of people that you're going to kind of grow with. And I think it really helps you to grow that way um, that. I kind of inherited a bunch of friends and even family just by be, becoming on the board. But that you really see that uh, I really feel like a lot of times on the board, we feel like almost like family. Um, yes. Jeannie always says it's like having a bunch of the brothers she never had and never wanted. Uh, so it's like, <laughs> it's like, that's kind of how, that's, that's kind of how we, uh, this is a joke, but that's, that's kind of how it is. Is like, we're going to act like, like that sometimes. And so I just, I just only mentioned that because I think that um, the students don't, a lot of times you get this lone wolf attitude, like I need to go out and prove myself and prove that I'm a somebody and prove my worth. And really, if you want to grow well, what you really need is, is people around you that are going to grow with you, people who are like-minded who will grow with you. And, and I don't think that should be neglected. That's um, true. Yeah. But I want to change gears just a little bit because what t Dr. Gonstead said that if you do it right, you'll have to build a new clinic every 15 years. Um, and so we both have stories about that, that as we moved on to clinic two, clinic three, whatever, um, you think that it's going to open up a, all of your problems that you have because your clinic is too small because you want to blame everything on the clinic. So the clinic's too small and that's where all of our problems come through. We're going to build this brand new clinic. You build this brand new clinic thinking it's going to solve your problems and all you do is, is open up another can of worms. 
Um, so why don't you talk about the house that you bought um, and what happened when you tried to plant flowers? <laughs> <laughs> you talking about my, my first practice and how I grew? Yeah the, yeah, the one where it was the house and then you found out that it wasn't so simple as you kind of thought it might be. Okay, so so I started off in Fremont uh, when I graduated from chiropractic college. I, I practiced with Dr. Richard Thornton for a year, learned the ropes, went off and tried to start a practice in SoCal, California with Dr. Pete Thibodeau, uh, who was a great mentor as well to me, um, and I'm very grateful for my time with Dr. Thibodeau. Uh, Dr. Jeannie Taylor was our CA at the time, uh, and so... Uh, that's how I got to know her, and she she was she taught me a lot about billing and insurance and and things like that. It was really popular in those days. But uh, it became time for me to start off on my own. So I found this uh, place in Fremont. Uh, this is 1982. I found a place in Fremont. I shared my office with an acupuncturist. I became a real mixer, being a Palmer graduate. That was really a big deal. I, that's how I started working with acupuncture. Uh, acupuncturist, but uh, so, I, so I started my practice, shared it with an acupuncturist. I put an x-ray in the unit. I had two adjusting rooms at the time. We had a shared reception area. We all both had our own private offices and I had an x-ray. So that's how we got started. I only had one set of adjusting equipment. The other room was empty. Uh, and I got to the point I didn't have any employees and I hired my first CA who uh, was not, not the sharpest knife in the rack, but uh, she was she was a, a nice person and and a, you know a, an attractive person and when I say that I mean attracting personality so she could bring new patients in the office and she could help us but uh, she just couldn't add and subtract basic math uh, again but uh, anyway started like that and and I hit a, I hit a point where I wasn't I wasn't seeing enough patients to really really say I was making good profit. Uh, and so I met Dr. Charlie Ward, and he said, you got sec- a second adjust room, you mean it's, it's empty? And he said, you know, if you put a set of equipment over there, you'll double your practice. So I, I just dumb enough to take his advice, young and dumb, uh, and dumb enough to take his advice. So I bought a second of equipment. I filled that room up with equipment. And within just a short, you know, 60 or 90 days later, I doubled my practice. So I doubled my space. I doubled my practice. Uh, and that went on till, for about three years in 1984. Five, excuse me, 1984. Uh, so late, late 84. I, 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 Charlie said, you know, you're kind of hitting the limits here. You know, you need to, you, you, you say you want to grow, and and I already bought my first house, and so he said, you need, you need, what you need to do now is you need to buy your own office building. So I bought an office building. It was a house, it was a residential home, on a main drag in Fremont. My town is Fremont Boulevard and Mallory Avenue, the two main drags in town. And so I bought a house. It was 50 years old. And I spent a whole year uh, rebuilding re, uh, that house and, and reconverting it from a residential home for 50 years to a commercial office building and $100,000 cash. This is 1984, uh, $485. I put $100,000 of cash into that building, finding I, I had to have a, a professional landscaper draw some architect plans on how to put plants in. <laughs> it's ridiculous. You know, I had to put a what's called a parapet as a, a, a fireproof wall on the top of the building to, you know, there's an apartment building right next door to my place. And they said, if a fire got in this house, it's been there for 50 years. But now because it's a commercial office building, the zoning changed. So if it caught on fire, a flame might go across your building and hit the, across the driveway, hit the other building. And so I had to put this fireproof. Wall. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff, electrical changes to come up to building codes and so forth and so on. But end result was... After a year later, after I bought the house and a year later, 
uh, I could move into it. And I went from two adjusting rooms to four adjusting rooms. And sure enough, within less than about six to nine months after that, I doubled my practice again. And in June of 1986, I saw 100 patients a day for the first time in my career. And uh, that's, that's how, so you start from nothing, which is what I did. And you doubled it and you doubled it. And, and eventually you find your, your, your incompetence place. And I, I, I found when I hit a hundred patients a day, that was too many for me. So I found that if I averaged between 80 and a hundred, I was my happy place. When I was a hundred, I'd start to take a little more time off and let the practice settle down a little bit. Cause I was getting a little tired and a little burned out. Uh, and if I was seeing less than 80 patients a day, I wasn't making enough money and paying the bills. I didn't feel like I was growing. So for me, I found that comfort zone between 80 and 100. And then as the course of your career goes along, you'll find that comfort place. It might be 20 or 30 patients a day, three days a week. It might be 150 patients a day, five days a week. But every one of us will find their comfort zone. And you just keep feeding feeding yourself in, in a way that you continue to grow. And, and again, eventually you'll find a place where you're not happy and you just have to make some adjustments and get yourself happy again. Yeah, if you get too busy, you can always hire somebody. So being too busy is not really the problem. Being under busy is the problem. But I think also, jumping back a little bit to the offices that we have now, one of the big reasons this works for us is that we know the secret to success. And the secret to success in chiropractic is the ability to get sick people well. And so you don't need the bells and whistles and you don't need the flashy objects and you don't have to have a a hundred thousand dollar marketing campaign and you don't have to do that stuff. You just have to be able to get sick people. Well, and if you can do that, word of mouth is the cheapest advertising there is. You just have to get things done and people tell stories and that's, that's what it takes. And so I'm sure even for the office you have there, it was kind of a new community for you. And yet I'm sure even now, most of your, most of your new patients are coming by referral because you just get results. Exactly. Well, you know, okay, so I'll tell you what, I, I practiced with Richard Thornton for a year, and and, and I tell you what, I, I developed as a chiropractor, my chiropractic skills developed with him, uh, and uh, but when I left him, I went into practice with Pete Thibodeau, and I'll tell you, I, I owe a lot of my growth and success to Dr. Pete Thibodeau, and, and I want to I share that with him, I love him with all my heart, great man, uh, but one of the things he taught me was, you know, what I didn't learn with Richard Thornton is I didn't know I mean, he'd been in practice about 15 years, 15, 16, 18 years, something like that, when I first started with him. And all he did at that time, all I saw anyway, was he'd show up and take care of patients and go home. He didn't go out of his office and do any marketing things, and he didn't have any way to generate business into his office. So so I just thought, gee, I could do this. So I went and practiced with Pete Thibodeau. And, and the first thing Pete said is, well, where are your new patients going to come from? I said, well, I didn't thought about that. <laughs> So, so Pete taught me the most valuable lesson I've I learned in my career as far as practice growth goes, the single most valuable lesson, and that was that I needed to learn how to get out in my community and just talk to people and let them know who I am, where, I at, where I'm at, and what I do. And, and those three things, who I am, where I'm at, and what I do. I'm Dr. David Curry. I'm a chiropractor, so I say the word doctor, so I, I, I create some credibility, but I also make sure I'm Dr. David Curry. I'm a chiropractor. I don't want them to think I'm an obstetrician or a neurologist or, or anything else. I'm a chiropractor, and my office is over here on State Street in Fremont. And, and by the way, here's the question. By the way, who's your chiropractor? And then you stop. So you learn how to say who you are, where you, are, what you do. 
Hi, I'm Dr. David Curry. I'm a chiropractor. Tell them a little bit about what you do. I help sick people get well with natural, whatever you want to say, however you want to say that. And then you say, by the way, who's your chiropractor? And then by their answer, they say, oh, you're a chiropractor? Yeah, now you have a captive audience. You know, you can talk to them about chiropractic. If they say, oh, I would never go to a chiropractor, then end of the conversation. I'm not out there looking for to turn rotten apples into something wonderful. I'm really not. There's lots of fish in the sea, and so I just move on to the next person I meet, right? Putting your antenna up and, and attracting people is, is, is a real skill. And I learned that from Dr. Pete Thibodeau. Uh, today they've got social media, and that's a great source of getting new business. And, you know, I don't know the first thing about social media, but I have talked to people who are successful with it. And, and uh, some of them are getting creative. I talked to um, Dr. Jen Santos, who's a colleague of mine at the college. And a lot of, a lot of my students know who she is. She's a really wonderful doctor. She's not gone said, but she's done a great job. And she has a lot of doctors working for her and her, she's got three different offices and, and probably three or four different chiropractors in each office. And, uh, what she, I asked her, do you do social media? And she was sharing with me what she does. She says, yeah, let me show you. She just, she just puts little posts on social media. It's, it's Instagram, it's Facebook and, and, uh, maybe Twitter. Uh, but, uh, Wherever she puts uh, out, she just showed me just a little bit about us and who we are, make sure that people know that they're real people and um, that they're, they're out in the community. Here we are. We're out at the, the racetracks and we're having a good time and, and a little education about chiropractic, but not always slamming down the chiropractic philosophy down people's throat. That's the big boo-boo. Don't keep shoving your chiropractic story. And the other thing, too, I just want to mention is that, that not a single patient has ever come into me and asked me what my grade point average was in college. Yeah, that's true. Even though I graduated with a very high grade point average in the top 5% of my class of 150. Okay. Not a, the only one was impressed was my mom. Okay. <laughs> and I'm also in Silicon Valley, uh, which means that I, I grew with the dot-com era. You know, when, when, when Apple first started, I was here. And to date myself, I, I started in practice before the PC was even invented. Before, before you know, they they created the Apple computer or the IBM PC, and uh, so I have my practices full of engineers, and not a single patient has ever come to me ask me for a clinical study on anything, not a single one, and my practice is full of engineers. Okay, yeah. so that's for us. That the story about you know my philosophy is just for me. I don't need to share my chiropractic above down inside out philosophy. I love philosophy. As much as anybody, Dan Lyons and I would would match really well, you know. Uh, but but you know, quite honestly, I, I just learned that my philosophy is for me. What patients care about is what's about what talk about them. Hey, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? Let me help you. Let me see how chiropractic can enhance your life, and and that's all that really counts. So my wants are that I want to tell people about my you know how how the immune system is so powerful and so wonderful and blah blah blah. My great philosophy, what my needs are, is to talk to them about them. It's all about them. Yeah. Actually, that's a big trap because patients sometimes being polite will say, well, how are you doing? And don't take that bait and start telling them a 10-minute story about how you're doing or not doing. <laughs> like, they really don't care. <laughs> so I always, I always have my mindset that if they turn it back on me, I just turn it back on them. Um, that really, we're here because of you, not because of me. I'm obviously fine because I'm here. Um, if I'm not here, I'm not fine. If I'm not fine, I'm not here. So I'm here. I'm fine. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's always trying to turn it back on them and find out more about them because that's where the information comes that we need anyway. So it's true. There's a lot of um, those kind of little traps that you can get caught in um, of talking too much about yourself or put, be, you're right, being too heavy with the philosophy 
um, overaggression looks like desperation. And so you don't want to do that. And if you are desperate, desperation usually has a smell and it doesn't smell very good and the patients can smell it. So I see that that's something a lot of people do because if you build that big ego driven practice and now you're going to pay this big bill every month, you're going to be a little bit desperate. And so it's, it's key to put yourself in a situation where you're really not desperate. You can be totally laid back and you can make the best decision for your patient. Cause that's one of the problems I have as well is when you put yourself in that bad situation, it doesn't matter how good you think your ethics are. And the fact that you got to pay bills starts creeping into your mind and it can start changing the recommendations you make. Um, and the point you made about competency that you need to see what you, you can only see what you can see. And so when I hear about a, a new Gonstead doctor who's been in practice a couple of years, but they're seeing, I don't know, I'll make up an absurd number, 350 patients a day. I go, there's no way because I know that that's past your competency level, which tells me you must be shortcutting the system because can you get to that point? I don't know. Maybe you could, but not in a couple of years. I just know the process of learning. That's something that's for somebody who's got more than 10 years experience to be seeing high numbers, not two years of experience. And now I'm seeing a ton of patients uh, you, you can have a problem, a problem of a practice growing too quickly and it outgrows your ability. Um, in NASCAR, they say that the guy's out driving his talent is basically what they say because he's being aggressive and he's trying to do things with the car and doesn't have the talent to pull it off, but has too much ego to know he can't pull it off. It's the same kind of scenario where you're, you're out driving your talent and you're trying to do more than you're actually capable of. And in that situation, I would say, hire somebody else, bring somebody else in um, and, and build the practice that way. Don't try to do it all yourself because you're going to outdo your ability level. Exactly. Um, well, you know, oh, go ahead. You know, there's a, there's something else too. I think that uh, I, I'd, I'd like to share about is, uh, you know, managing a business, you know, if you're going to be in practice for yourself, you know, you, you know, uh, my son's a CPA and uh, he would agree with this wholeheartedly is that, that uh, you know, it's all about watching the numbers. You know, you need to watch the numbers. And so uh, if we talk about that from being our experience and practices, four numbers that we need to keep our eye on, four numbers in your practice, four numbers. Number one is how many new patients are you seeing? And give that a day, a week, or a month. I would say keep track of it by, in a month. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a pretty good gauge of it's enough time interval to, to where it's significant. Um, but how many office visits or how many patient visits are you seeing in a month? Call it a day or a week, but ultimately in a month. How much money How much money are you charging and how much money are you collecting? So those numbers will be the same if you're, if you're uh, paying cash. Uh, but if you're billing insurance, your charges and your collections are going to be different numbers. So it's a different world you live in if you live in a world of insurance. So you bill out $10,000, but you only collected $2,000, and the other $8,000 is coming in 60 or 90 days. Well, I can't spend my bills today. I can't pay my bills today on what's coming. I can pay my bills today on what, what actually came in. So I'd say those four numbers that we, we need to keep track of, and, and I would say if you're in your early couple, three, four, five years of your practice, perhaps up to 10 years, the single most important number is the number of new patients coming into your office. You got to get the new business in. You're just starting. You got to get the new people in. But at some point, you're going to have to take a look at yourself. If I've retained those patients, if I've done a good job, I sh I've got a base now, and I shouldn't need to be focused on the, how many new patients I'm getting. And I, I use the gauge of 10 years. If you look at somebody who's 10 years in practice, they've been there in that, in that community for 10 years, 
if they're still the biggest thing they think about is how many new patients so you got to look at that person that that person needs to look at themselves in the mirror and say i did it wrong because they didn't retain their patients they don't have that base they're still having to put they've got a, they've got a bucket and they've got a big hole in the bottom of the bucket they keep putting new patients in but they keep dropping out of care and they don't come to you anymore because you you overcharged them. You you didn't manage their schedule your schedule properly. You know you weren't there when you were supposed to be there. You were there, whatever. There's a problem when when people keep keep leaving your practice. But uh, uh, so I'd say after ten years, the the number to watch some and I'm saying ten years, but at some point it's it's how much money am I collecting? Okay, and then finally at some point uh, somewhere between fifteen and twenty years in your practice. How much money am I putting in the bank? That's uh, that's my that's you know, I'm keeping in the bank. In other words, after I pay my personal expenses, how much money is left, and am I growing? Because you got to retire at some point. Got to have some funds. So you got to have extra. It's a really great book. I'd recommend everybody read. Actually, about three of them, but I'll, I'll mention I'll mention one first. Uh, and you you could probably have some others you want to add in there. But the richest man in Babylon yeah, is a great book. Well, it's yeah. a classic. The richest yeah. man in Babylon. Uh, and it wasn't the person who, who charged the most or who made the most, the richest man in Babylon. Great, great book. I won't, I won't share anything more than that other than recommend it highly. It's an easy read. You can buy it on Amazon. Or uh, you probably, probably get it on audiobook, the richest man in Babylon. Um, and I'll tell you another thing too, is uh, I think goal setting uh, is, is something that, that uh, every, every young doctor and, and any, any doctor at any point actually need to, to decide, you know, what are my goals? And uh, I, in 1982, I just share this, uh, I mentioned this to at the board meeting when we transferred uh, presidency from me to you. Uh, I mentioned this, is that in 1982, I listened to an audio cassette. It was a cassette, uh, uh, and you can find this on YouTube today. It was called The Power of Goal Setting. You can find it on YouTube, the audio recording, Paul J. Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R. It's about a 20 to 30 minutes uh, recording, but I listened to that over and over and over. I was just dumb enough to listen to what he had to say. And I, and I, and I can think back at, at, at my life and over the years and say, if there's one thing I did that I was really, really smart was that I just was dumb enough to listen to people with some experience and, and had a good story. And he had a great story. He said, write all your goals down for your entire life. Write them all, write them all down. They need to be, you know, anything that you can dream of, write it down. And I wrote things like, I want to be a dad. I want, I want to have, uh, I want to, I want my kids to have values. I want to see a hundred patients a day. I want to, I want to be a Gonset diplomat. I want to be a Gonset fellow. I want to be a, a sought after a worldwide speaker. I want to be the president of Gonset Clinical Studies Society. I wrote all these goals down in 1982. And, and, and I look back at my life now, I'm old enough to be able to say this. I've looked back and every single goal I wrote down in 1982, I have accomplished. So if, if you don't write those goals down, they're just wishes. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're just poof, like puff, like puff, like smoke in the air. It just goes away. But if you write it down, it's tangible, it's solid. Uh, and, and especially if you can write them down where they're measurable and they have a deadline for attainment. Uh, there's a lot to the story of goal setting, but I think that's a mm-hmm. big part of being in practice. Yeah, and I told you that when I was in school, I went to a seminar and uh, Mark Victor Hansen, one of the authors of Chicken Soup for the Soul, same thing, said, you need to write down 100 goals. Yeah. And so on the break, I was sitting in the lobby writing 100 goals and I felt a hand on my shoulder and a voice said, what are you doing? I didn't recognize it was one of my friends, so I looked back to see who it was and it was Mark Victor Hansen. And I said, I'm writing my 100 goals. 
just like you said. Uh, and he said, all right, then I'll leave you to it. <laughs> so I wrote down my goals and I had it in a notebook and I kept it. Uh, I kept it for the longest time. I don't know where it is right now because I moved too many times, but it's somewhere. Um, but same thing. I wrote down those goals and it was like each time I wrote down a goal, it somehow became more tangible that this is a goal. This is something that I'm going to make happen and something that should happen. So uh, I definitely recommend, especially for people just getting started uh, to write write some goals. And maybe you don't need 100 of them, but write down some goals of of what you hope to attain. And I think it might be better rather than for me to project a hundred goals for my lifetime was kind of difficult. I think it's better to write a few goals for five years, a few goals for 10 years and a few goals for 20 years. I think that'll be more productive, your long-term goals and your short-term goals. And then, then you'll be better on course for getting things done. Yeah. Um, oh, there was something else I was thinking of and now I can't remember what it was. Um, I don't remember what it was now. I had something that I had something I was thinking of for you that was a little off topic, um, but I guess it was so off topic I forgot what it was. <laughs> but um, but actually, this this has been great to talk about this about this stuff. This is not something we talk about very often, and I, it does often concern me because I see people coming out of school and they've got so much energy and they're all jacked up, ready to go do this thing. And I'm thinking, oh, but I see all the pitfalls, and if you don't steer correctly. Uh, the, what happens when you get caught in one of those, it's so sad to see. You don't want to see people getting divorced and you don't want to see people losing their children and you don't want to see people going bankrupt and losing everything and you don't want to see burnout. And, and a lot of these things are so easy to navigate and avoid. Um, and I think it all comes back to what we started with, which is if you can get rid of your ego now, just eliminate your ego now, which I think comes from insecurity. You're graduating. You know you don't know. You don't want your patients to know you don't know. So you build the Taj Mahal of practices to make them think you're something you're not. And the reality is if you can just get, let that ego go now, build a practice that's sustainable and makes sense and just start doing work, the other things will come to you with time and you give yourself a chance for that to happen. So uh, I appreciate having this conversation about that. I have one final comment I'd like to throw out there, and that is this, is that uh... – uh, I, I, I would I, I would say it this way: Man cannot surpass his own self-imposed bonds of limitations. That's a powerful statement. I memorized that from many many years ago. Man cannot surpass his own self-imposed bonds of limitations. And uh, I, I'm going to give this credit to Dr. Charlie Ward, who had a great influence on me in my career in Kirby Landis. Those two. And one of the things that 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 they said to me was. You got to get your mindset correct. You got you got to you got to stop thinking, uh, thinking, thinking, and and uh, you can you can accomplish anything that you self set yourself out to do if you just decide you're going to do it. Uh, so if you set your goals, you set yourself in. The mind is a powerful, powerful thing. If you think you can, you can. If you think you can't, you can't. You're always right. Uh, and don't never ever let go of that. I've trained all of my kids. My kids, uh, you know, my kids have, have all been, you know, my 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 son's a CPA. That's what he decided he's going to be. That's a PhD in accounting. My other son's got a bachelor's degree and and uh, was a police officer. That was where he decided he wanted to be. My daughter was my youngest daughter wanted to be a mom. She's been a great mom. My other daughter wanted to be a mom. She's raised her kids now. She's got the uh, three boys and two of them are in high school, and she's now gone and got her college degree and she's a, teaching third grade. So, you know, the mind is a powerful thing. If you think you can, you can. If you think you can't, you're right. Uh, and uh, just get your mindset set on, on, on success and moving forward and, 
and be, be weary of the shiny lights, the shiny objects. There's many of them out there and distractions are, 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 are many. And, uh, you know, get yourself set on where you want to go. And if you want to be in private practice, go for it. If you want to, if your if your mindset is, I, I'm just better off to just be an employee. And that's nothing wrong with that. That's a great place to be. Some people, you know, um, uh, Ray uh, Clinton was was a great clinician. Ray Clinton, great, great, great clinician. He was just perfect to work in the Gonsai Clinic. He just wanted to see patients and get some people well. He didn't want to be the top guy at the seminar. He didn't need to have his own business. You know, he was great. Bill Dressler was the other way. He had to leave the staff after Gonsai, shortly before Gonsai died. He had to leave the staff at the Gonsai Clinic because he wanted to be an entrepreneur. He wanted to be on his own. And so everybody's going to decide where they want to be. But the mind is a powerful, powerful thing. And and uh, and honor it and bless it and be, be, be very grateful for it. Yeah, I think there's one thing we can give to people. It's permission to build to build your practice. There's no expectation. There's nothing that it has to be. Build the practice that works for you if you're going to build a practice or work in a practice that works for you. But there is no expectation. There's nothing that's like, this is Gonstead and everything else is not. It's do the practice that works for you. Exactly. So, so thank you again for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's been a joy. Thank you very much. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Curry for joining me. I think he gave you a lot of really great tips on how to build a low overhead practice. Remember, the ideal practice is the one that builds you the life that you want to have. There's a saying that hard times make strong men. Strong men make easy times. Easy times make weak men. And weak men make hard times. Geopolitically, we see a lot of weak men and women making some really hard times. But that's not the reason why I bring this up. I bring it up as a caution because chiropractically speaking, we are in pretty easy times. And that's when weak men and women are created. We should not take the relative ease of practice for granted. These easy times could easily make us weak and quickly transition into hard times. We must be ready for that transition as much as we work to avoid it. This is why I advocate for a low overhead practice, because they're positioned to withstand any transition in the economy. Don't let your ego lead you into bad business decisions. It's such an easy trap to fall into. Well, I hope you learned something valuable today. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.